0: So welcome, everyone, to Ancient Modern. Today, we're delighted to have with us uh, Professor Patrick Lee Miller. He's an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at Duquesne University. He's the author of Becoming God, Pure Reason, and Early Greek Philosophy. Early Greek philosophy, very fascinating topic for people who are listening. Um, and he's published articles, uh, I'm just going to read out this list that you have on your website. It's published articles on Heraclitus, Sophocles, Thucydides, Plato, Aristotle, Polybius, Augustine, Hobbes, Hamilton, Madison. Darwin, Nietzsche, Mill, Freud, Rawls, Rorty, Judith Butler, and David Lynch. So that's quite a a wide span of authors to to be dealing with. Um, And uh, it also says on your bio, Patrick, his recent philosophical writing uses platonism to address current problems such as gender, sexuality, child psychology, and and a few other things. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, So why don't we just start out there? Because... You say that you're using Platonism. I know that you, your Twitter handle is Plato4Now with a four Arabic numeral. Yeah. Um, so are you a Platonist? <laughs> would, you, would you call yourself a Platonist? And, um, and if so, how, in what sense are you a Platonist?
1: Yes, so I do consider myself a Platonist. I do wonder sometimes about uh, that Twitter handle, how wise that was. You know how it is, you, you go on Twitter and you just try to think of something and that was what I thought of that day. But it, it was an attempt to summarize my approach, which is how to be a Platonist in the 21st century. I just fear sometimes that it makes it sound like I'm saying I'm Plato for now or, <laughs> or whatever. But, but yes, I do consider myself a Platonist. And since your podcast is about ancients and moderns, maybe the way into that, what it means for me is through Nietzsche because I think Nietzsche is one of the best readers of Plato. I don't think he gets Plato entirely right, but I think he gets the important stuff right about Plato. And so even though he's very critical, I think he's a useful guide to knowing what Plato was trying to do. And Nietzsche says at the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil, the preface, he says that uh, Platonism was the great catastrophe of our civilization. You know, he thinks Christianity, for example, is just Platonism for the masses. It was really Platonism that was the error. And the two, points of Platonism that he isolates as the catastrophe are the immortal soul and transcendent goodness. So what does it mean to me to be a Platonist? I, I think it's what it meant to Nietzsche to be a Platonist and I think what it meant to, to Plato and the other Platonists to be a, a Platonist, namely you believe in the immortal soul and you believe in transcendent goodness. Now I Just as a footnote perhaps, another thing that gets associated, I think it was cornford who said the twin pillars of Platonism are the immortal soul and the forms. Uh, Anybody who knows Plato knows, yeah, the forms are really important to Plato, but of all the forms, the form of the good, or or just simply the good is the chief one. So when Nietzsche says the immortal soul and transcendent goodness, I think he's capturing both the notion of the forms and the supremacy of one form or one, one super being in particular, the good.
0: Right. So, I mean, if you read something like the Fido, it's very clear. I think there, there are three or four arguments in that dialogue for the immortality of the soul. I mean, of course, Socrates is in his prison cell, so he's trying to uh, kind of uh, reassure his disciples that he's, he's g- going to be immortal, and then I suppose they're going to be immortal, too. So, yeah. and, you, and I think you can see in many readers through the ages have seen that as continuous with Christianity, and I, I think you already said Nietzsche probably hated Platonism partly because he saw it as continuous with with Christianity. So is that something that, that, that you think as well as that you see Platonism and Christianity as going together in some way or?
1: Yeah, I think that Platonism gives sort of the basic metaphysical or even philosophical structure of Christianity. I mean, of course, Christianity existed as a religion before it came into contact with, with Greek philosophy, You know, at least in the person of, of the, the apostles, for example, perhaps Paul was was in touch with Greek philosophy. But until the councils really incorporated Platonism into Christianity, Christianity existed, but it was the councils who who gave it shape. And so that shape, I think, is that there's an immortal soul and that there is this spiritual realm to which the the immortal soul belongs. And I think those are just so fundamental to the the post-Platonic and post-Christian worldview that we we tend to forget that those are Plato's innovations. Okay, so, um...
0: I, I, when I teach Plato to the students, I mean, I, I teach them about the forms, and it's very easy to caricature the forms. And I do a little bit of, a, of it myself because, I mean, ultimately, I guess I'm, a, I'm an Aristotelian about universals. I don't really think that they exist in some, in some metaphysical realm and that things partake of them, as Plato yeah. seems to think. But, you know, I, I also try and get across to them that, in a way, it's a very appealing idea, and I think it's at its most appealing in, in mathematics. You know, because yeah. where, wherever you go in the world, you have two objects and two other objects, and they make four objects. And it's, it seems to be this universal, transcultural thing. Now, why is that? I mean, Plato's answer is that you know it partakes of this other realm in a sense. So, yes. yeah. So is that is, is the idea of the forms itself an idea that you think is defensible and appealing in, in other other spheres of life beyond mathematics?
1: Yeah, I think a transitional. So let me just say that when I introduce the forms and give the arguments for the forms as I understand them to my students I do start with mathematical notions because you know they're willing to take on board the universality of the number 2 before they're willing to take on the universality of beauty for example but a, a transitional notion and the one that Plato uses in the Phaedo is equality so you see an instance of equality you see another instance of equality and you're seeing the same thing in those two instances. And so the thing isn't over here and it isn't over here because if it were over here, it wouldn't be over here. And if it were over here, it wouldn't be over here, but somehow it is. And the, the, the simple solution, I mean, I think the theory of the forms is remarkably simple. The simple solution is that it's in a way in both and in a way in neither. And the way in which it's in neither is that it's super sensible that it's eternal, that's spiritual, roughly speaking. And the way in which it's in both is the word you use was partake, and that's very common, uh, especially for scholars of Plato to use that word, but I, I think it's a misleading word. I think it's a kind of Aristotelian word because it makes it sound like, well, there are these things, they're there already, and then they partake in something else. Whereas I think the, the correct way to think of it as a Platonist is that these instances are, are projections or images of the original
0: thing. Right, I mean, that's, of course, what's implied or really spelled out by the analogy of the cave.
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah, the cave for me, I I start almost all my courses with the cave if it's appropriate. I mean, intro courses, for example, and of course, Plato courses. And one reason is, is that it, it just condenses everything about Platonism into one really simple and memorable story. You get the politics, the psychology, the metaphysics, the epistemology, it's all there in narrative form.
0: Why don't you just briefly describe that because um, maybe some people listening haven't e- encountered it before. So what's, what's the analogy yeah. roughly? I mean, I know so it's I'd a little hap- bit tricky, but.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Could I just say a little bit more about equality? Go uh, ahead and ahead. A, a more, uh, I think a, a more compelling case for the forums. Yeah. So you've got a basic argument that we both seem to agree on, which is that the only way to get repeatable instances of the same thing is to have some third thing of which they are instances. But he chooses equality, I think, deliberately because, first of all, it's got this kind of quasi-mathematical status that makes it easy to see the universality, but also that when we see pairs of things, we might see them as equal, but not completely so. So, I mean, really just at random, I've got a couple of shakers here. These are equal, uh, in a sense. At least they're more equal than these two things are equal. So, you know, I say here's here's some equality and here's another bit of equality, and so we can run that same argument we already said and say it's two instances and so on. But there's more to it. It's that when I say that these are equal, well okay, they're both physical objects, so they're both in my hands, however we're gonna characterize their equality, but it's, they're less equal than these are equal. And once we sort of think about deficiency of equality and we're careful, we, well, these are also deficient in equality. This one has pepper, this one has salt, et cetera, et cetera. So if we look around and we see instances of universals, as you call them. We also see them as deficient to a greater or lesser degree. And Plato's explanation, and I don't know a better one, is that we could only see the deficiency if we already had a template that was perfect. So when I see these as deficient, I mean, they're pretty equal. I mean, I could have gotten away, as I do with my students, of saying, well, these are perfectly equal. But then, you know, there's always someone who says, well, there's a little bit of inequality and so on. Once you start... Acknowledging this fact about your experience that you see instances of things, but that they're all to a greater or lesser degree deficient. If the best explanation of that recognition of deficiency is that you're seeing those instances in the light of a perfect, in this case perfect equality. well you never find perfect equality in the sensible world through the five senses, so you're in contact with it, but it's not accessible to the senses. Well, you're in contact with it in some other way, you know, super sensible, or or by using reason, by thinking about it in the way that we are now.
0: Well, this is one of the places that it gets tricky, though, isn't it? Because you know that example with equality, I can see exactly what you mean there, and uh, and we can all, I think, intuitively grasp that. Yeah, two things that are equal—that's perfect equality. Like if there were two uh, playing cards, both the king of Sp- spades from two different packs, you know, people yeah. would say those are exactly equal, Okay, maybe the. Maybe if you look at it at the sort of microscopic level, they're they're slightly different, but basically they're they're equal to all intents and purposes. So we we have a grasp of perfect equality. Now, if we move into other uh, other areas, perfect beauty—that's a bit more. It's a bit less intuitive. I mean, maybe we have a sense of what that would be like, but then you move into even more difficult uh, universals or qualities perfect goodness, perfect truth, perfect justice. How do we get an intuitive grasp of that?
1: Yeah, so about the playing cards, just to make sure that you and I are understanding each other, if not agreeing, Plato's point is that we can get two things that are very, very similar, like I tried to illustrate with the shakers or the two king of spades, as you said, but even there, when we think carefully, we're not seeing to we're not seeing perfect equality. We're seeing an approximation of perfect equality, but we're not seeing perfect equality. And the explanation of that experience is that yes, we're not seeing perfect equality, but we can only judge it as imperfect equality in the light of a standard which is itself perfectly equal. So that must be, you know, he calls it a form, which uh, which we know directly through reason and not through the sense. Okay,
0: so so in that case, the argument would be that it, 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 at every point when we perceive beauty or goodness in the world, there's yes. a feeling of a kind of lack, which I think it, it, this is an argument in, in the dialogues. Yes. And, and that feeling of lack presupposes that we have yes. a sense of the supersensible realm, which it, it, actually to get down to brass tacks, I mean, if you... I think in the Fido and other dialogues, it's a kind of recollection, right? It's an anamnesis. And really the story is our mortal souls had, had dwelt with the forms in, in previous a uh, previous stage of existence, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's the story. I, I don't think that in the end that makes thorough sense because whatever epistemological problems we have here of accessing the forms, we would have had presumably if we were just like ourselves, but still existing in some other realm. There's gotta be some other way of understanding the relationship between the form and and the intellect that understands it. And it has to be some kind of identity. That's that's more of a technical question. But in other words, I think that the story of recollection is just that, a story, a noble lie, which is his way of expressing what I think he believes, which is that we're in contact with the forms right now. It's not just that, We were in contact with them and we can remember our contact, but we're in contact right now. And the purpose of philosophical dialogue or philosophy more generally is to recognize that contact, not to give yourself some new information, but to recognize what you already know.
0: Okay, well, that's a good point to go into the cave analogy.
1: Yes. Although, if I may, because you brought up the form of beauty and and you suggested, I think, rightly, that people are less willing to say there's a form of beauty than they are willing to say there's a form of the number two or a form of equality. Yeah. Um, But that point about imperfection, and I think you were, I saw you nodding and maybe I was projecting, but I thought maybe you were seeing what I wanted to say next, which is that it's true. People get into more disagreements uh, about beauty. Maybe not. I mean, nowadays, we have a lot of arguments about equality as well when it comes to social relations. But at any rate... People are less willing to say there's there's an absolute beauty or there's an absolute justice or whatever. But this way of understanding the argument for the forms, that in fact we don't perceive perfection in the sensible realm accounts for the differences that people have. When it comes to, well, why do you need a form then? You need the form to account for the purpose of a conversation that two people who disagree about, say, beauty, the purpose that that conversation would have, which is, if the two people are in good faith and they're not just saying, well, I'm gonna tell you about my view so you can learn about my personality and you tell me about your view so I can learn about your personality, which is of course how a lot of quote unquote philosophical conversations go these days, namely let's share, here's my perspective, here's your perspective. But if the conversation is what Plato thought was an authentic philosophical conversation, which he calls dialectic, it has to have, it presupposes that there is a thing that we're looking for. And so if you and I disagree about you know whether Niagara Falls is truly beautiful or not, and, and you think it's not, and, and I think it is. Well, if we're going to have a conversation about whether it's truly beautiful, we both have to agree that there is such a thing as true beauty. And then the debate will be, well, what is that? That's what the dialogues are. What is beauty? What is courage? What is it, et cetera, et cetera. And then when it comes to Niagara Falls, in the, in the fantasy world where we were ever able to establish what that uh, true thing is, to what extent does Niagara Falls fall short of that? Like how deficient is it would, would be our common supposition because we would grant nothing in the sensible world is perfectly beautiful.
0: Okay, but then someone might say that you're sort of, uh, you're writing in platonic presuppositions into the way that you've talked about that, that conversation between two people talking about Niagara Falls, right? Because yeah. they might want to say, well, let's talk about Niagara Falls, um, but I, I don't really believe there's, a, there's uh, such a thing as absolute beauty. Uh, but i will have a conversation about well that looks beautiful to me and that looks more beautiful to you and then you're in a sort of utilitarian realm where you're talking about kind of uh, comparing preferences and it it might be a similar conversation to do you think it's too hot in this room that's another way of looking at aesthetics right
1: yeah no that's exactly right and that's why so many of the platonic dialogues are encounters with the sophists who have that view as a as a philosophy or quasi philosophy depending on how How we define that activity of philosophy. And and Plato acknowledges that position that you're describing, not only in the practice of the dialogues themselves, but in the Republic, where he talks about dialectic in book five, he also talks about the lovers of sights and sounds. These are people who will not accept that there is such a thing as the form of beauty. There, they think beauty is, is in the sensible world, and they travel from festival to festival to, to behold beautiful songs and so on, and, and they're satisfied with that. Yes, Plato will say, there are such people, but if they get together and they wanna have a conversation about beauty, there are several ways that it can go. And he makes a, a, a distinction between two basic ways, uh, dialectic, which I mentioned, and heuristic. Aristic is, the, the Greek word is, as I'm sure you know, eris for strife. Aristic is a conversation that uh, is full of strife because they don't have a common goal. They don't, they don't even, so let me just, again, repeat that. Dialectic is where, if you and I are having a dialectic about whether Niagara Falls is beautiful or not, we're gonna, if it's a di- proper dialectic, we're both gonna enter the conversation assuming that there is such a thing as the beautiful and then try to figure out what it is and then, to what extent Niagara Falls uh, falls short. But if I think Niagara Falls is beautiful because I'm a Canadian and you don't think it's beautiful because you're a Kiwi and what's really going on in our conversation is we're just using Niagara Falls as a prop in our prejudicial battles about which is the better country. Well, it's true. We don't need a form of the beautiful to do that because the goal isn't to find the truth of beauty. It's like to make you submit to my notion uh, so that you can acknowledge that my country is better, or vice versa. And of course, I'm caric- caricaturing. There are middle grounds, like the sharing idea of a conversation that I mentioned earlier. Plato's is it's not even on his map, or at least he doesn't think it's worthy of consideration. A, a so-called conversation where I share and you share. I mean, I, I shouldn't say so-called. Those are valuable. Like a dinner party. It's not every dinner party has to be a dialectic. You want to find out. What does the other person care about? You know, Get inside their mind so you can get to know them better. It has its place. So Plato can acknowledge there are lots of different kinds of conversations, but what his point here is, is, is not that there isn't that diversity, but that if there's going to be one kind of conversation where the goal is to find the truth of the thing, then there have to be forms. There has to be something independent of the instances that the participants in the dialectic are going to try to understand.
0: Yeah, okay. I think that I've heard you debate free speech on campuses and topics like that. Yeah. And if I'm right about this, um, this is part of your view of why free speech is valuable in a, in a liberal democratic society, right? That what we're doing when we have debates and conversations is actually trying to find out the truth. That's
1: actually in a quite- university. Yeah, in a university, the university. goal should be to find out the truth. Like I said, at a dinner party, it's kind of pedantic. If, I mean, they're a nice dinner prize. I was at one the other day, like, people were actually in, interested in a, in a certain question and we pursued it, they were all philosophy students. But uh, I, you know, I wouldn't insist that all conversations, but yes, the point of a university as I understand it is to find what reality is like. And so even though there's room for lots of different kinds of conversations, if they're not woven into a dialectic, then it's not a university, then it's just pretending which is what I think a lot of our universities are doing these days. Okay,
0: so you would use that argument for university settings and maybe think tanks and research institutes, but in society as a whole, uh, why do you you think free speech is a good thing in society as a whole? Does that have a different um, justification?
1: Not for me. So I wrote a series of articles uh, for Quillette and the argument that uh, concerns this most particularly is in an article called Liberalism Can Succeed which was the second part of a review of Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed. So the first part of the review was liberalism hasn't failed. And the second part was it can succeed. And whatever I think of liberalism now, I I wrote that I I think four years ago now, maybe longer, five. But at any rate, um, the argument that I made there, if I were going to defend liberalism, uh, a society such as ours thinks of itself to be, the, the argument was exactly the same as the one for the university. Namely, the, the only rationale that I can make sense of for free speech is you need free speech in a dialectic that's pursuing the truth. So that if we have a society oriented towards, and when I say the truth, I, I, Plato's more specific and I'll, I will be now in this context, it's not just any truth, like the truth about stamp collecting or whatever, it's, it's reality understood now as the forms and particularly the reality of the good, this super form, if you will, this thing that's thing actually in, in his thorough conception beyond the forms. And so I just revert again to Nietzsche, that Nietzsche really saw that was it, goodness, transcendent goodness. It's about that. So a society, as I understood it, that could be liberal, which is to say to grant free speech as an example, or some of the other rights in, say, the American Bill of Rights, it has to be oriented towards the good. And what I was doing there, what, I called it platonic liberalism, was saying, I think that liberalism actually needs Platonism to underwrite itself intellectually, but it's a quixotic project because the foundation of liberalism, is, as we all know, was British empiricism, or at least the, sort of the practical matters of the, of the British Civil Wars and then the American Revolution and so on. It wasn't a platonic project. Some of those thinkers, whether it was Hobbes or, or Jefferson, they were explicitly anti-platonic. So yeah. I was... I was really trying to, as I say, do something quixotic was to say, look, I really think free speech is important in life. I think Plato did too. And the rationale for it has to be a society that's oriented towards the good where that can't be spelled out until we get a definition of it, which requires philosophy. And Plato even says, you're not gonna get a definition of the good because it's it's beyond being. At any rate, Free speech requires that kind of society, liberalism understood platonically, but I recognized even then, we don't have liberalism that has a platonic foundation, it's got a very different foundation. And so that's why I've moved away from that notion of platonic liberalism, because I think that's just, that was a fantasy. I I just don't think, when someone says liberalism nowadays, of course, one first of all gets understood as having certain progressive ideas. But then when you say, no, 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 what I mean is classical liberalism, even there you're retreating to contract theory, Hobbes, perhaps Hume, uh, and so on. I just don't think there's any place to insert Plato there in a way that's gonna make a difference.
0: Well, no, I think it's an interesting project though, Uh, but uh, immediate question for me is, so what was it about the usual justifications and the sort of classical foundations for free speech that you found dissatisfying?
1: Yeah, well, what's my problem with classical liberalism? Uh, you know, the, the contract theory, I think that's just, that's just a fantasy. That's not how fantasies, uh, excuse me, that's not how societies actually get constructed. So it's not a historical claim. And, and, you know, in the best thinkers, it was not meant to be. But then what is it doing? It's, it's an idealization. And I think that the critiques of contract theory as idealizations is correct. So I mean, take Rawls as an example. I mean, he's someone who's explicitly saying, this wasn't a historical event, this is just the original position, as as he calls it, where you get these abstract human beings who get together and make a decision about the best principles for a society, about uh, how justice should look in their society. And the mistake there, I think, is broadly the anthropology. That is to say, he's imagining these abstract individuals that's not what human beings are. And I, th- he would kind of grant that, but I think Denine was right about this, that the abstract individual that liberalism always imagines as at its foundation, whether in an ideal contract or in a historical situation, isn't real. At best, it will only ever be produced by a liberal society. So let me make it a little more concrete. What you have in the original position, as I recall, is people who don't have any notion of the good. So that's to say, they're not religious. And people are, are almost always, if not always, religious in a certain understanding of what it is. To be. I mean, people always—I think—people always have a notion of the good, whether they whether they admit it or not. So in that sense, they're they're religious. So it's imagining people that are I, I think are actually impossible. Well, if not logically impossible, very very hard to find. Uh, although one does get people like this more and more as, as societies become more and more secular, people who at least think they don't have a notion of the good. And that's not an accident. Again, that, that was Deneen's point. I don't know if it was originally his or not. But at any rate, the point that our societies are producing the very kind of agents that it says are the agents who made the decisions to form the society this way. So it's got things backwards. The, the liberal individual is not at the root of liberal society. The liberal individual is produced by liberal society. And that makes it sound a lot more like a society oriented towards the good. Namely, hey, people who don't have a notion of the good, that's the good. We want a society of people who don't have that kind of commitment.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good uh, criticism of Rawls. I think even there, there's some slippage from okay. the, your admission that the original position is really just a thought experiment to yes. this idea that People aren't like that because Rawls can just say, "Well," and for people who are listening, maybe don't haven't read Rawls's really influential theory of justice. I mean, the original position is just the idea that uh, it's a thought experiment for thinking about what justice is, and the idea is you kind of have these disembodied souls before they're born, before they go into society, and and you're going to be one of them, and you want to design the society in a way that nobody's unhappy with the conditions. So you may be born as a disabled person, you may be born as a a uh, handsome person with lots of family wealth. He may be born uh, you know, in different social circumstances. And so I think Rawls intended that as a way of thinking about justice. But I mean, this is obviously part of the debate also about contract theories, you know, which, which uh, imagine a time at which the people were in a state of nature, as Hobbes says. And there are various versions of this. But the, the simple the sort of platonic form of this is that people um, sign a kind of implicit contract with a Leviathan with the state. So the state will supply security, and, and, and that will help supply yeah. liberty, and help right. produce commodious buildings and capitalism and all and, and right. whatever whatever you want, basically in a right. in a, in a, in a civilized society and a, a true civilization. Um, okay, so that, that that that's you dealt with Rawlsianism in an interesting way, but it, it strikes me that you know in, in liberal democratic societies as a whole, I think people probably have different justifications for why they think free speech is a good thing, or why they used to think free speech is a good thing. And I think some of them are just based on maybe these foundational principles of liberal democracy, uh, autonomy and freedom, uh, or freedom and and equality. So I think lots of people just think that um, free speech is part of our nature, or part of our um, understanding of ourselves as uh, free and equal citizens. So the, the freedom element uh, goes into this argument about self-disclosure. You know, that free speech is about developing our personalities in a certain sense, uh, in a sense that John Stuart Mill talks about. And and if we're equal, then we have equal right to say things. So your view to your your capacity to be offended doesn't trump my uh, ability to put forth certain ideas within limits. that I'm not you know act actively abusing you. Um, so what's wrong with that, those ideas? I mean, what's wrong with just the idea that free speech just comes out of the idea of, uh, the broader idea of political freedom?
1: Well, I have a couple of critiques and they're nascent. So I'm, I'm thankful for this opportunity to think aloud about them. I've been writing a little bit about this. So one is just the general problem with freedom as a goal. Freedom is a means to a goal, but freedom isn't a contentful goal. So I think a society can not actually organize itself around freedom. It can organize itself around freedom for the purpose of achieving something. And that's what I was trying to say earlier is that I think the only way to, to really ground freedom, to, to give it the philosophical half that it needs is freedom for the sake of finding the good and, and thus discussing the good and so on. But uh, I see that, that, that sounds very abstract, but I see that illustrated in the history of what used to be called the intellectual dark web uh, which was a loose organization of people who I, I think it kind of coalesced in 2016, 2017, people who felt that campuses and to, to some extent society was becoming more restricted in, in what it was possible to say. So that was really the, the era of deplatforming speakers and so on. And that's continued. I think it was just, it, it intensified dramatically, especially after the election of Trump, uh, when I think the left really got anxious and felt like if they didn't, you know, get control of this conversation, that it was going to go down the wrong path. And that group gathered around the idea of free speech. And that was really the one thing that they all agreed about, because I remember seeing charts of the members and and where they stood on various bread and butter political issues like social health care and abortion, at least the ones that divide people in the United States. And, And they were largely on the left, but there was a mix. And so the the idea seemed to be, hey, here's a bunch of people who disagree about substantive political matters, the sorts that that used to divide the left and the right, but they all agree that we need to have freedom of speech to debate these ideas because they all have this confidence that with freedom of speech and debate, the truth would emerge and that uh, bad ideas would disappear. I think the fantasy was bad ideas would disappear you know, in the light of day, you know. The light, sunlight is the best disinfectant for bad ideas, and if you, you hide them in the dark, they fester, and so on. I shouldn't say fantasy, that was the idea. I don't know, I, I don't believe it anymore, but I don't want to disrespect it that much. Uh, well, what happened to that group? It, 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 it didn't last. It dissolved, as far as I can tell. So, there may be a few holdup members. I, I don't know that anybody even uses that word anymore. And in my telling, you know, they ha- in the end, they had a common enemy and they were resisting that common enemy, which was largely the, the left had moved in a progressive direction in a reaction against Trump. And it had arguably been moving further left, in, you know, in the few years before Trump anyway. But at any rate, they had a common enemy. They were, they were trying to protect themselves against this common enemy. But as events unfolded, I think that the the pandemic, and then I think the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, and then the second Trump election, 2020, I think those events really divided them. And it looked to, you know, they started accusing each other of misinformation as that uh, charge was starting to get serious in the sense that you could get banned from Twitter, or at least have your account suspended if you were accused of misinformation, I mean, about vaccines and so on. And they started to take different positions on, the 2020 election or on the Black Lives Matter protests or on especially the pandemic and, and now on the Ukraine war. And as they started to take those different positions, they started to recapitulate what it is they were supposed to be fighting against, which was, they were calling each other, you know, spreading misinformation and so on, which was tantamount to saying that, that they shouldn't be allowed to, to spread that information, that they shouldn't have free speech. And so I, I, to me, that's an illustration of the broader abstract point that I was trying to make earlier, which is I don't think freedom can actually hold together a group because it's, it's not got any content. It, it seems to have content in a particular situation for a time when you get a disparate group of people who have the same enemy and they just want to be free of that enemy. But if they have to make decisions over the things that they already disagree about, they're going to start limiting each other's freedom. That's one critique I have a, I have a deeper critique, but I, we might want to talk about that a little bit first before, but I'd like to give the second one as well
0: No, give the second one because I was actually going to uh, I was actually going to critique your your substantive idea but yeah
1: <laughs> okay well i'm happy I'm happy to hear the critique at any point, but yeah, sure, let me get out the second one while I can remember it it's that so if if free speech is good because you know it allows us to express ourselves I'm trying to remember the exact way you put it uh, we have autonomy rights, and we should be able to express our views yeah, because freedom I mean, is good for its own sake. Yeah, yes.
0: like, that kind of thing. I mean, are there, okay. there's, there's, I think there's many different arguments that, that, that uh, start from sort of axiomatic values of equality on the one hand and freedom on the other. And some people even think these two things go together. Um, yeah. So what would you say to those? So What's your second critique, I suppose, of those? Yeah,
1: well, just quickly about equality. I, I mean, freedom and equality, I don't see them going together. Mm-hmm. They seem to me hostile that, uh, you know, you... You, you, anarchy produces inequalities. Uh, well, some, some, people are,
0: people, uh, it, some people would say, I mean, this is kind of Ronald Dworkin's take, I suppose, that um, we're we're equally free to we're free to speak if we're equally free to speak. If we're not equally free to speak, then we're not free to speak in the sense that one person has much more power to have their say than I do. That I'm less yeah. free as a result, and that seems to stem from it, from a difference in in our power, that kind of inequality. That's the basic idea. But I know, I know that you can yeah. come up with examples where they do seem to, to run contrary to each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: let's, let's bracket that for the moment. Let me make a second critique because I think a second critique will kind of feed back into this. It's, hard, it's a little hard to express because, and this is just a, a, a change that's happening in my approach to all kinds of questions, political questions especially, that you know, there's, the, there's the surface values and then there's the institutions that go along with those surface values. And so when I hear, I don't want to name names, but certain commentators nowadays talk about liberalism, like they seem to me to be just talking about those surface values and they don't recognize the reality of the institutions that you need to make those work or at least seem to work. And I include myself, this is a self-critique. In other words, that article I wrote, you know, five years ago or whatever for Quillette that was trying to defend a version of liberalism. I was naive in the sense that for me, it was just a purely philosophical question, like how can I give a rationally defensible justification of, of this concept? It wasn't about, well, what would this actually look like in practice, and it could it possibly function in the way that it, that it's saying? So, yes, people should be free to speak. So, you know, I, I believe that you believe that. Well, uh, what what conditions are required for people to be free to speak? So, I mean, to, just to make an extreme case, if you and I have both been brainwashed, you know, to believe that two plus two equals five. And now we're free to do mathematics. Well, I'm free to say two plus two equals five, but I'm also free to say two plus two equals four. Like nobody's making me at the moment say one or the other, but I always say two plus two equals five. You always say, say the same thing as well because of the brainwashing. So th- that makes the point really clear, although totally impossible. But I think it becomes plausible if you do the hard work of, thinking about the institutions and the way in which they are, they're having that effect on our society. So this gets to the cave, so maybe we'll fold that in at the moment. You know, cave, you know, for people who don't know it at all, Plato imagines a cave where there are these people, I'll call them prisoners, at the bottom, and it's significant that they've been there their entire lives. Behind them is a fire, and in front of the fire is a low wall behind which other people are walking back and forth, but they're parading statues and models, so that the fire is projecting an image of those statues and models onto the wall of the cave. The the prisoners, as I call them, they've been there all their lives, fixed in seats, so that they can only see the wall of the cave. In other words, they're living in an illusion, you know, rather like a, a movie theater, but they've always been in that movie theater, watching movies that are being projected by these, I call them puppeteers. And this is, this is really helpful. Actually, this is not just helpful in this conversation. This is helpful in this, this way. I have a thinking about this now. This is, this is going to be able to, I'll be able to make this point clearer, that imagine giving those prisoners free speech. Like nobody tells them that you can't say anything. They're allowed to say whatever they want. Well, terrific. On the surface, that's freedom of speech, but are they free to speak? Not really, because the only things that they can say are things about illusions. And that's the equivalent of what I was saying about, about the brainwashing. And so the the root of freedom, it can it just can't be this nominal surface level ideology, which is now how I found I find most of the discussions of free speech. It has to be what are the real conditions? And I, I use the word institutions. What are the institutions that are holding people fixed so that they're only looking at you know certain images on the wall, like the media, for example? If the media is only feeding us certain things, then even if we have total freedom of speech, it's gonna be a lot harder to imagine options to those other things. And I found this in my own life that certain ideas, you know, especially since I've gone on Twitter that just don't get talked about in the academy, once I encountered them, usually with a sense of revulsion and then curiosity followed by credulity, that it's very hard for me to remember what it was like to not think those things because it's, like, it's not like every, nobody ever told me don't think those things, I was free to think them, it's just they weren't on the menu of options for me to think. And that's what it's like to be a prisoner in a cave.
0: Right, so the, the, this is my main worry about what, what you're saying though is that, um, and, and you sort of reminded me of it just when you were talking there because, so basically what you're saying is it's not just about freedom, we're actually looking for something which is a substantive value which is the truth. Uh, and yeah, reality,
1: which for, which for for Platonist is the good, but that's a bigger matter.
0: Yes. Sure, okay, so whatever, however you want to find it. And you do have a well worked out sophisticated view about what that is and you take that from Plato, uh, fine. So my, my, my major worry about this is just that um, if you justify freedom of speech, you support freedom of speech with reference to the substantive value, then it's easy for that value to sort of crowd out uh, other values, right? Because, and this has happened many times in the history of the world, in the history of liberalism in the history yeah. of autocracies. And uh, I know you don't want a sort of strong form of this where you torture people unless they, as far as but there's this danger, isn't there, that in the past yeah. people have said, well, look, Christianity is just the truth, or Islam is just the truth, yeah. or, yeah. you know, the fact that uh, Kim Jong-il is the great leader, that's just the truth. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're free to, you're free to speak as long as you speak in this particular way. So why is I, I know you I, I have a sense your view isn't that, but in what sense is your, your view really different to that?
1: Yeah, well this gets back to that notion of platonic liberalism that I that I defended, where the orientation of the freedom is toward the good, but let's be careful now and distinguish the Christian notion of the good, for example, we could the Muslim, the Jewish, whatever, and the Platonic. And here, here there's a gap. So we talked, you know, because of the Nietzsche quotation, we talked about the similarities and, and there, there are some differences. So Christians think they know what the good is. You know, it's, it's the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the magisterium, etc. There's a, a fully worked out or a worked out account of what the good is, namely who God is and you know, what he, what he's telling us to do and so on. That's not Plato's notion of the good. Even if Plato's notion of the good was used by the church to give a metaphysical explanation, you know, to the philosophers. But Plato's notion of the good is something that, well, there's so many things to say. One is that uh, it, you know, to have an account of it would have to be an account that could be defended against all possible objections. Now, I don't think even, uh, except for the most dogmatic apologists, I don't think most proponents of, of any particular religion think. This religion is defensible against all possible objections. I mean sometimes they'll say well that's a good objection, but it's a mystery for example well, that's just not going to cut it uh, with Plato. you know you have to defend yourself you know if you say the god the the Godhead is one God, three persons, you better give a pretty good explanation of that and uh, of course, there have been Christians who have tried you know Aquinas for example so uh, there's that, but more fundamentally, the good is not a form like any other forms. In fact, I, I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to call it a form because he says that the good is special because it's beyond being in rank and power. And being is another word for the forms. So he's got this idea of spiritual reality as having immortal souls who are thinking of the forms and as intellect, they're identified with the forms. But then there's this super being. So, so, so much being that it's beyond being. And let me just be clear about that as, as much as is possible. Being has two senses in English, uh, to exist. So if I say, you know, the, it is raining outside, there's rain, there is rain exists outside, or, um, he is tall where he, he is, is he exists, he is tall, he has a certain property or quality, or, you know, he is a rational animal, he has a certain essence. The forms are supposed to give the essences of things. They give the answer to the question, what is courage? What is justice? And so on. The good doesn't have an essence. It exists without any essence. And what that means is that you, you're not going to be able to get an account uh, that is going to be fully defensible, not just because you're not good enough at it, you don't, you know, you haven't read your Aquinas thoroughly enough. It's that it is beyond certainly language, it's beyond thought because what do we do when we think? We we work with forms which are essences. So that's a very technical metaphysical discussion, but here's why it matters in politics. Anyone who tortured someone, for example, because they felt you don't have the right notion of the good couldn't be a Platonist because the Platonist doesn't think that he has the right notion of the good because it's built into Platonism that it's, it, it exists without essence, so you can't have a notion of it. It's a goal that you could never possibly reach through language or
0: th- even through thinking. Okay, so then the question is: so you have this almost substanceless, substantive uh, ideal, and the yeah. question is, I suppose, if you are looking at society and you you are trying to sort of safeguard this value of free speech in the way that you understand it. And yeah. for you, it's a value of free speech that's justified mainly uh, as a way of finding out the truth. Yes. How, can, how can you tell that people are going down the wrong track? And how can you tell when it's sufficiently serious to actually justify any restrictions on free speech? Because that's where my main worry is that this can be used to restrict free speech in particular. Yeah, ones.
1: yeah well, I'm, I'm... I'm not a free speech absolutist, and usually no one wants to be that because then you, you, know, you allow people to make death threats and you allow you know, uh, people to say uh, fire in a crowded theater and so on. So I'm willing to accept the minimal limits on free speech. But beyond that, I'm, I'm a free speech maximalist, let's say that, uh, for the reason that if somebody believes that what they're saying is, is their effort to discover what's real, then especially about what's really good then I, I don't see the i don't see the problem i don't see why it would have to be regulated as such
0: okay so um so you, you, your view on this is actually quite close to a number of people who i don't think justify it in, in the interesting way that you do through platonism so i mean there's this been this recent book by jonathan rouch with the constitution of knowledge and in some ways that's it's not quite a Papyrian view, but, but it, it draws on people like Popper, who talks about the philosophy of science, and it kind of views, in a way it's kind of like a, a Hayek view, it, it views the whole of society as a kind of knowledge generating apparatus. And the theory there is, well, this knowledge generating apparatus is going to be better, we as a society are going to be better at seeing the truth, seeing reality, maybe even seeing what goodness is, if yeah. people are free to ex- exchange ideas, yeah. Um, and this view has different features. I mean, some people think it's good to have some veto points so people can kind of cool their heads and think about things more. Some people say, no, it's good to have lots of voting and public participation because then it feeds yeah. in all the individual information in different locations. So do, do you like those kind of, kinds of views?
1: I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm willing to accept a plurality of interpretations of how this idea could be put into practice. I mean, I, I have certain political commitments that make me uneasy about something I've maybe vaguely heard in, in what you were saying, but you know I, I certainly think that should that should exist even if it's it wouldn't be my ideal system yes that's right, and of course, a society understood this way, oriented towards the good or truth or reality or knowledge uh, I haven't read the Rouch book, but I liked what you said about it uh, it also has to you know, perform basic functions of society like guarantee national security and, you know, yeah. make sure there's clean drinking water and so on. But I, I think that those things can be justified as like, how else are you going to pursue reality if you can't drink clean water and if you're, you're getting, you know, marauded by barbarians?
0: Well, also, I mean, I think in that, in that view, you are better at war and you're better at supplying clean drinking water because your society has the capacity for people to put up their hands and say, hey, my drinking water in my local area isn't clean without them being, yeah. Um, I mean, this is one of the things about the very early stages of of, uh, COVID-19 in China, you know, there were various medics who said, oh, there's this dangerous virus, and they were suppressed. And, you know, in the end, it didn't go as badly for China as it might have. But I mean, that was probably not the best way of doing things.
1: Well, we're probably um, still in early days. I mean, I think it's been one big flaw of the whole everybody's approach to COVID. We thought, well, you know, within two weeks, we understood it or a six, you know, it's just yeah. continually evolving and we're, we're continually seeing so many different aspects of the problem. It's almost infinitely complex. Before I, I lose this, though, I, I think you might like this and I think it will enhance this discussion. So Fukuyama makes basically the argument that I'm hearing you representing is making uh, for liberal democratic capitalism uh, in the end of history book. And you know the, the basic, I mean, it's a complicated argument, but the, but the basic point that touches here is that he thinks, I mean, the reason why he thinks that's the end of history, properly understood, it, it, because of course, there's gonna be a regression and so, and so on. 9-11 didn't refute Fukuyama and so on. But the reason why he thinks that that's the best system is that it, it, it will ultimately win because it's, it's the most oriented towards reality, which means that science will be the best which means its economy will be the most productive, which means its military will be the most destructive, and it will win, even if it has temporary setbacks. And I, I thought that was pretty persuasive for a while, but this change that i described, you described know, 15 minutes ago in my thinking about politics, where there's the ideology, like that sounds really great, but how does it actually function the name I would put to this shift that's happened in me with regard to this question is Curtis Yarvin, formerly known as Mencius Moldbug. And, you know, he was anonymous for a long time and he, that's, I think that was crucial to the kind of work that he did because some of it's the kind of stuff that would get you in trouble, you know, talking about it in a university, for example. And uh, I think he's done a lot of great work. Uh, but in this context, the, the, to, to me, the decisive point is that he talks about the details of how the American government actually functions. He knows it because his, his mother was in the civil service. So, you know, when most of us talk about politics, we talk about, you know, the legislators and the elections and so on. Most of the governing is actually done by the civil service and we almost never talk about that. And that's a homogeneous group of people. I mean, you know, they they most of them vote the same way. Most of them are from the same economic class and so on. So you have this change of, legislators and you have potentially disruptive legislators executives like trump but they make very little difference because there's this behemoth you know now the name is that we all know is the deep state this behemoth that is just gonna it's like it's like a uh, what do we used to say a, a cruise liner it's just it's going to keep going in the same direction you're not going to be able to turn it around in four years um that that's the government and since that uh, thing, the civil service, makes decisions by appealing to experts in the academy, for example, uh, not just the sciences, but sometimes, you know, the humanities when it comes to gender questions, for example, because it's, as Yarvin puts it, leaking power out to the academy, it corrupts the academy. Because if you think of the academy as just a pure truth-seeking institution, which is its oftentimes its official ideology and the thing I think it should actually do, However, if you've got people who are, first of all, directly employed by government agencies, and let alone, you know, in other words, the logic that you wouldn't want, at, you know, uh, pharmacy professors employed by pharmacy companies, you don't want people who are doing investigative, you know, intellectual inquiry into political questions to be employed by the government, especially because the government as such has an interest that the answers come out a certain way. Not just that Democrats want certain answers or Republicans want certain answers, but this civil service, this massive thing that has an interest in preserving and growing itself is going to want answers that it's going to uh, uh, legitimate its growth and its stability. So he has a really good metaphor for this. Uh, Sorry if i have talked a little too much this time. But he says, you know, if you've got a lake and it is full of algae and you want to clean it up, it doesn't, it doesn't work to just like dredge the algae because whatever's causing the algae, it's just gonna rebloom. If there's fertilizer running off nearby fields, you gotta, you gotta stop that fertilizer runoff before you clean up the algae. So when it comes to the corruption of universities, for example, you know, they've got this great ideology pursuing truth and we're objective, et cetera, et cetera. But, but more and more, I think, I see, I see that Yarvin's right, that the runoff is the political power coming from things like the civil service that are predisposing academics to think certain ways. And it, it filters down. I mean, you know, the, the influential ones are the ones who get the appointments to consult with committees in the civil service and so on. But of course, they're the influential people in the field, and, and it filters out. Now, this was clearest to me in the case of gender.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I have nothing against that as a critique or as, as a discussion of exactly what's gone wrong with contemporary universities. I mean, you have private universities where similar things are happening, so there's that. But... But it strikes me that that's the kind of, um, and I don't mean this as a, as a put down at all, it strikes me as a sort of classic right of center critique of the of the bureaucratic state and in, in the ways in which uh, bureaucracies can sort of develop their own, their own momentum and their own interests. And, and that's fine, I just wonder, does that critique really knock down the Rauchian or Fukuyama view that it's liberal democracy in the broadest sense that uh, produces or, or, or helps set the conditions for debate and improvement, because even that critique itself, you know, if people agree with you and then there are more private universities or the state has less of a heavy hand on universities, then that can improve things. And presumably even on things like gender, uh, things will go back towards reality or or at least some kind of balance.
1: Yeah. So so you'd think so. (laughs) You'd think so. Let me revert to the cave, which you know, isn't gonna advance the conversation, but I think it'll, it'll at least help me orient myself. So it's, it's, it's what I was saying a while ago about people in universities are like prisoners in a cave. They think that they're having free debates, but in fact, they're just debating these options that, have being, that are being projected uh, for them. And I'm sorry, I'm losing, I'm losing my point. Can you prompt me again? So we um, got Fukuyama. The, uh, the,
0: you, you were saying, but, but basically what we were, initially you were talking about Fukuyama's book, The End of History, which I, by the yeah. way, I completely agree. It's been massively misread. It doesn't say it's just the end of history in the yeah. sense that nothing is ever going to happen again. Yeah. It's yeah. this kind of Hegelian idea that there's only one idea which is, has yeah. broad appeal, basically yeah. it's ideological.
1: Okay, <laughs> I think I recapture that. Yeah, okay,
0: Sorry. that just prompted yeah. me. <laughs>
1: Um, so so yeah, Fukuyama's got this idea that liberal democratic capitalism is the best system and, it, and it, 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 it will eventually win even though it's gonna have some setbacks. And why? Because it's the most truth-oriented one. But if to instantiate liberal democracy, you have to have this deep state, this huge civil service. And of course, this is just a part of the story. Uh, Arvin talks about various aspects of the government, one of which is the New York Times, which sounds implausible, but I think he makes a, a great case Uh, one of the ways that he makes this case, anecdotally, is uh, an anecdote from the 1960s. It was one of the Kennedy advisors who stayed on, I think, in the Johnson administration, George Ball, I forget which one, but he had an appointment at the Harvard, uh, you know, School of Government. And I guess the New York Times was on strike for a couple of days. And He came in and made a joke to the seminar. He said, like, the government's not gonna work because our inter-office memo service is down. The idea being everybody in the government reads the New York Times, you know, or the Washington Post, but they don't disagree with each other, so it's, it's the same thing. So the government now isn't just, you know, what you see on TV or what's in the US Constitution because the government leaks power. It leaks power to the academy, which he calls the cathedral. It leaks power to the media, which he calls the voice and so on. And then if you start thinking of the government in that way, well then the Fukuyama argument is is not clean, certainly. And it's like an algae-filled lake. I don't think it actually works because I think it'll work at the beginning, but the more power that leaks out, the more control that, for example, the New York Times and it's, you know, that legacy media, for example, and the academy, the, the more harmonious they are, the smaller the options for conversation in that way I was trying to get at with the simple cave analogy. Namely, you've got everybody's talking about gender or the Ukraine war or whatever it is, and you know, the, but they're only appealing to the three or four uh, approved options that you're allowed to say in the New York Times or that you're allowed to say in, uver- in a university seminar. So the relationship between government, which is supposed to enforce you know, what is found to be the truth and the truth-seeking institutions in their purest form, is not, it's not a clean separation. So you get corruption both of the media, which you know I, I think is plain as day now, and you get corruption in the academy, which I think I don't understand how anybody on the inside can't see uh, how corrupt, how corrupt it is as well. Another Yarvin sort of piece of evidence that I find persuasive is that the consensus of Harvard in any particular year in the 20th century is seems left to the country at that time. So take you know, 1915, whatever the consensus on the issues of Harvard was in 1915, that would have seemed to the left of American society in 1915. But that center of Harvard, which is to the left of American society, that becomes the center of the country 20 years later. And you get that pattern over and over again, every decade. That's not a coincidence. And that makes it seem like Harvard isn't this pure institution that's disconnected. It's somehow involved in reshaping what is discussable in the society, and thus you know, controlling the projector that's putting the images on the wall.
0: Well, Harvard, of course, would just say, well, you know, we're the clever people, and we have good methodologies, yeah. and we find out what the truth is. Sorry, the truth has a liberal bias, by which they mean in American parlance, a left liberal bias. And so the rest of the, the proles are just catching up with us.
1: Yeah uh, okay, I mean, let's, we'd have to talk about particular issues on which they say that, and I think they're right in some of the cases, and they're wrong in other of the cases, and yet they use the same argument all the time, and...
0: Yeah, I think Euron's critique is a a really interesting one, partly because it's interesting in terms of intellectual history that it's, it's a kind of postmodernism of the right, isn't it? It's saying that really these institutions which claim to be producing knowledge are not, and it's analyzing from the, analyzing them from the point of view of power, and I I don't think it's completely wrong, and I, I share some of his worries about uh, how the university has been corrupted. And I think state power has a certain amount to do with that. And I don't think it's, it's all the explanation. I guess I, I don't follow him the whole way, and I don't know if you do either, but uh, be, be, I don't follow him fully in sort of anti-democratic c- conclusions, uh, just because I think that if it really is part of the problem that there's this bureaucratic elite, which is separate from the demos, separate from the people, yes. and doesn't really have any feedback from their views, then surely the answer to that would be more popular participation rather than less.
1: Yeah, except that they don't like that and they do everything they can to suppress it, seems to me.
0: Well, no, exactly. I mean, I, I guess um, something to push for rather than something that will be actually uh, palatable to the, to the current yeah. elites. But let's. Yeah. Have, I should let you go in about seven or eight minutes, if that's okay. But do you okay. want to go? Do you have to go now? No, no, I, I can go as long as you want. Because I know you've got, you got kids in the picture, but let me just, I wanted, wanted to raise one more thing, which again is really in this area of free speech and Platonism and liberalism, because I've read some of your excellent essays on this topic, and you, I like to bring in the sophists and this contrast between the way that the sophists looked at speech and the way that the yeah. title looked at speech. So do you want to just briefly yeah. talk to that?
1: Yeah, and I think what we were just talking about is a nice segue, so if I can just sort of tie a bow around what we were saying, at least okay. from my perspective that I don't go all the way with Yarvin. I think that description you gave of him is is interesting and perhaps true, namely is a kind of postmodern right, because I think for Yarvin, it is all just power. (laughs) I think he is kind of a Nietzschean in that sense. Uh, Whereas I'm not, I'm a Platonist. So my critique overlaps with his of the universities. I think that the power critique is effective to discredit what an institution that has become largely about power and not about truth. But I would say, in addition, it should be oriented towards the truth. Where I'm, I'm not sure that there's a place in his philosophy for that. I don't, I don't want to say there isn't, but you know, he talks mostly about politics, not about metaphysics. So, uh, you know, I, I don't even know whether he has has a view on that question. But you know, the the the, the postmodern, as we're using it here, is a lot like the sophistic position that Plato was dealing with. At least that's how he understood it. And so that's why I thought it was a nice segue. So if I could frame the discussion about the Sophists by just saying a little bit about Gorgias' Encomium of Helen, if I may, uh, because it's frames how I think about Plato's encounter with the Sophists. Uh, well, the Theotius as well, but at any rate. So Gorgias is this Sophist, which in Greek, as you certainly know, and a lot of your audience will as well, it means wise guy or somebody with sophistication. They teach uh, public speaking or rhetoric, which has got, Immense value in the the democracies of Greece at the time. Gorgias shows up in Athens, and then these gentlemen want to learn how to speak persuasively so they can acquire political power and defend themselves in court because, as you know, they didn't have attorneys. They had to prosecute or defend in their own voice. So, to demonstrate that he is this amazing speaker, and, and thus, by implication can teach them to be amazing speakers, he gives this amazing speech, the Encomium of Helen, the praise of Helen. So Helen is the, and again, as you know, but in, in case you're, anyone in your audience doesn't know, Helen is, she's like the Eve of the Greeks. She's sort of considered like the source of the problem. She, she caused the Trojan War. And I think it was, was it Yeats who said she's the, the face that, that sailed a thousand ships. Or maybe it was Keats. I get them confused because of the, the, ar, the syllables. But at any ar, rate, ar, ar, ar. what's that? Arlumen. Sorry? Mar- Marlowe. I think is that line. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> At any rate, uh, to go and defend Helen, that's sort of like showing up in DC you know, on, on 9-12 and giving a defense of Osama Bin Laden. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's the, it's the bravado of it that's crucial to the event because he's trying to say, if I can persuade you that Helen's innocent, I can persuade anybody that anybody's innocent. And if, if you're persuaded, clearly you want to study with me because I've got, I've got the good stuff. And his defense, because her crime, was that she left in the middle of night with Paris, the progen prince, uh, prince excuse me, and abandoned her husband and, and their estate uh, back in Greece, Menelaus. So why did she do that? Well, the, the obvious answer was she chose. She, she fell in love with, with uh, Paris and, and she left. So she's responsible. And Gorgias is giving a, what we call philosophy, determinism argument, that she was determined to leave. There was nothing she could do otherwise. It's not her fault as a result. And he says, well, what are the possibilities? What might've made her leave? Well, you know, the fates. He goes through four possibilities. One of them is the fates and not even Zeus can resist the fates. So don't blame her. She just did what was, what was fated. Um, another is Aphrodite, which is to say she fell in love. But Aphrodite, as the Greeks understand her, is this goddess who can take over your life and there's nothing you can do about it. And you know, as you know, tragedies are, are written about this. So again, it's not her fault. There's one other that is escaping me for the moment necessity or, or, or whatever it is. But the fourth is what's interesting. He says, speech. Paris made her a speech. You know, It's not like he got up on a rostrum, but that he said something to her that changed her mind and persuaded her uh, to go with him
0: used as pickup artist tricks.
1: Yes, exactly. That's a good analogy. We, we might want to go into that in a moment. And you know, you might think, OK, well, he made some arguments, you know, gave her some reasons why she should go with him, and it was her responsibility to say no or to listen and just not to leave. But Gorgias defeats that argument by saying, words are like drugs. And he makes another analogy in another speech that I'll mention in a moment, but just in that speech itself. Words are like drugs. Well you know, like think of Bill Cosby when he gave drugs to those women, like whatever happened wasn't their responsibility afterwards. So if you think of words as drugs, then if the speaker, or at least the good speaker like Paris or by implication Gorgias, if he gives you a drug, there's nothing you can do. So if words function like drugs, no, no more freedom, at least in the hands of the persuasive speaker. In another speech, he gives an even more expansive understanding of speech. You know, he's up on all the latest theories because he, you know, like all clever speakers, he wants to sound like he's, you know, really at the cutting edge. You know, this, this would be like using neuroscience nowadays. And he says, speech is just like fine atoms coming out of the mouth and striking the listener's ear. Well, Democritus, this is the atomistic theory that was circulating at the time. That, that's, an, that's a deterministic theory. If the, if the atoms come out and they strike something, they're going to cause a, a necessary effect. So if speech is just atoms and my ear admits those atoms and that sets a deterministic chain of events in motion, then I'm not responsible. Because if the speech is perfectly calibrated, it's just going to be like putting a drug in me that's going to make me more pliable, uh, for example. And of course, he's demonstrating all this by giving this, this amazing speech. OK, so I forget your, your precise question, but let me just, just okay. say, say why I'm, I'm bringing this up. That if that's you know we we'll just let that stand for the moment is if that's the sophist approach that speech is like a drug or it's or it's actually like physical force, then it's not possible to have what Plato calls dialectic to, to refer back to what we talked about earlier. It's not possible to have a conversation where you and I sit down together and we give words to each other, not to control each other in the manner of drugs or. Um, you know, like little baseball bats that are going to, you know, batter you so that you, you, won't, you won't fight anymore. But my words are not going to go in as controlling forces, but they're going to go in as reasons where you have freedom to entertain and endorse that reason or entertain and reject that reason. So it's not a coincidence, I think, that that speech is simultaneously saying speech is not rational it's a drug or it's an atom. And it's using that to say, she's not responsible. In other words, she's not free. Because freedom and and rationality go together. I think Aquinas makes this case really, really well in the Summa in uh, question 83 of, of the first part, that to reason, we have to be free. Because if you speak in a way that determines me, well, then I'm not rational. Just, that's just like pushing this pepper shaker off the table. Speech is just a fancy way of pushing. So for a dialectic, speech can't be pushing. What is it then? And I think that's Plato's point of resistance against the sophist. He's saying, I think dialectic is possible. I think truth seeking is possible. I think it's actually really good. It might even be the best thing in life. And the only way it's possible is if there are reasons which are not physical forces that don't compel. And then the epistemology and so on is there to give an account of, well, what must the world be like for that to happen? That's where the forms come in.
0: Right, so I think that's a great example. That's a great way of discussing it because it's very much the case I think uh, on current college campuses and even in some of the debates on social media, that people see speech and sometimes they use these terms misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, as yeah. kind of quite compelling in a very strong sense that yes. if people are exposed to this idea, you go on that, you see you see someone posting that vaccines don't work, it's almost like automatically that will spread, and, and yes. you know it obviously has a certain impact like there's going to be a certain percentage of people who are persuaded, but I think it does forget what you're saying is that people also have the capacity to, to to digest these ideas and maybe to reject them. I mean that's another analogy you use, right? That it's it's not just like something going into your body, it's, 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 or, or if it is something going into your body, you can actually digest it, take from it what you want. Um, yeah. and, and that's actually kind of a halfway house if you think of it in that way, is because it acknowledges that, yes, there is going to be some influence, but you yes. also have some control over it. There might be more yes. control than you think, and other people might have more control than you think. So uh, yes. in some ways, I kind of like the idea of texts as drugs, because you know, you read Plato or Borges or Roberts and yeah. Davies, and it's kind of like, whoa, this isn't looking at the world in a new way. But you still have you know you're still you've taken the substance but you're able to kind of drive yourself yeah. in that yeah
1: part. yeah i like the combination too and and the way i ex- elaborate on this the summer of the pandemic 2020 when i published that article about plato in this office and so on using the gorgeous of uh, encomia of helen example was He, of course, wasn't a virologist. He didn't know anything about viruses. But I think viruses are what he really needed because that's not just a drug I give to you. But if it's a virus I infect you with, you can then spread it to other people. And that's how people think of misinformation as if they're viruses. But if you think of ideas as viruses, then of course, you're going to want to control so that we don't we don't all get sick. But what that leaves out is that we have immune systems and we can do things to build up our immune systems. And that's, reason, the immune system, and education, which builds up the immune system.
0: Yeah, actually, you, you've brought up something that I just thought of now as well, which is that um, I don't like this virus analogy, even when it's used in <laughs> a cause that I find just. I mean, I think you hear of uh, Professor Saad at, at, in Montreal. He, God Sad. you know, he often uses this analogy that wokeism is like a virus. And in some ways I don't disagree, but I mean, first of all, from a philosophical standpoint, it's not a, criti- it's not a critique, it's not a criticism. It's 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 a kind of it's it's kind of an insult th- thrown at it, right? So yeah. that's so yeah. that, that's unhelpful. But also, it kind of gives into this way of thinking about ideas that you know people have no uh, can have no defense to it other than just to say it's a terrible virus, run away, rather yeah. than say, oh, let's look at some of these ideas. Yeah, um, as, as we've been doing today as well with the uh, Curtis Yarbin and people that maybe some people would say oh, it's too dangerous to even talk about. It. But yeah. often when you yeah. think about these things and you think. Immediately, I mean, maybe my brain is just like this because I'm an academic, so I mean, this isn't a boast. It's just a weird thing, but you hear ideas and I immediately start thinking, well, that's, that sounds wrong, that sounds wrong. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so uh, yeah, and I, and I think about dinner parties. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think Plato uh, has both. I mean, he does, again, he doesn't have the virus analogy, but that people are largely prisoners in a cave so that's like the virus they're just being fed images and they're you know being rational which is to say discussing them but they're not actually getting anywhere because they're just dealing with illusions that makes that's like the courtesy Armin point that's just like it's all ideology it's all power but plato allows the possibility he's not saying it's going to happen but he's allowing the possibility that you can escape and what is the way to escape philosophy which as you know is just a greek word the love of wisdom it doesn't have to have any content, you know it then becomes a question well, what is wisdom? what is it to know? Is there a difference between wisdom and knowledge and you're, you're off to the races with philosophy as we as we usually understand it and so one thing I like about Plato is one can simultaneously say, yeah, these postmodern power critiques, whether they come from the left or the right, you know formally doesn't matter, they're onto to something they're, they're right about maybe ninety nine percent point nine nine percent of human interactions, but what Plato adds is but it doesn't have to be that way. It's possible to pursue truth, or you know, or t- just to show the range of this—the the Christian example. It's possible to love with charity rather than with possession or, or, or whatever. And I see those as saying it's possible. And then once it's possible, well, what does the world have to be like so that it's possible? And what can we do to accentuate that possibility? And you know, briefly, his answer—if it's not clear. Uh, in my interpretation, is to make it possible, there have to be forms, and the good, and an immortal soul, and what can accentuate it, philosophical education.
0: Yeah, I mean, philosophical education, and there there you, I mean, I was going to go at it from a different angle, but you kind of joined up with where I was going there, which is the sort of John Height um, and Greg Lukianoff emphasis on educating people for debate, And, and part of that, I think, is just to sort of I mean, they talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy, and part yeah. of that is just to say, well, look, you have all these fears that you're not gonna be able to cope, that things are gonna overwhelm you, but actually have a go. Yeah. And even if it's a dangerous idea that you think is absolutely appalling, yeah. you will probably, you'll probably be able to cope with it. And not only that, it'll strengthen you in the sense that you'll immediately start generating, I mean, maybe sometimes you'll be convinced, but sometimes you'll, if you're not, you'll be, yeah. be able to evolve these antibodies to, yeah. to combat these ideas yeah. you dislike. So I, I like Jonathan Haidt. I like that
1: book. I teach it regularly, um, but I'm critical of it in a way I wasn't, you know, when it came out. And you know, and, and Haidt was important for me in those years, 2016, 2017, when the intellectual dark web was coalescing, and so on. Like he helped me, but uh, I just wrote a long thread on Twitter uh, three or four days ago criticizing his latest, what he calls like the summation of all his views, which is about uh, his. His take on social media and how it's corrupting our democracy as he calls it and and you know just to summarize my critique of Haidt's approach now it's that it's too well at least in the in the version that you were giving of it of the like the cognitive behavioral tricks that we can teach people so they be- can become better behaved in debates I mean it, it I'm not saying that doesn't work to some extent, but I think that it's missing the source of the problem. It's like cleaning up the algae without getting to the fertilizer runoff. So that you know, if you're able to train people to you know, sit still and listen rather than screaming chants against a view that they don't like, okay, that's an advance, I guess. But if the debate is happening within a narrow window, like does it really matter in the end whether people are chanting or or listening and and exchanging reasons the The basic problem is the is the window, like why aren't they you're talking about this or this? Why not this thing that's way over here? That's actually true? Why is that not part of the the debate and I uh, this He just seems too non-political. He's focused on the individual. that's that notion of cognitive behavioral therapy like let's focus on the individual and let's train people and let's make these policy tweaks and so on so people are better behaved and you know control social media and so on. I mean, for example, this was part of my, my thread, he thinks there shouldn't be anonymous accounts on Twitter. And you know, because part of his account of how social media corrupts our democracy is you know, people, people you know, say mean things on Twitter or whatever they're abusive or they spread mis- misinformation. I, I can't remember this precise point, but I think that's, that would be a disaster because I think it's the anonymous accounts that are saying this stuff. And they're not saying A or B, they're saying X or Y. And sure, sometimes it's crazy conspiracy theories, but sometimes it's right. So take the lab leak theory, for example. They were the ones who, they were right on the lab leak theory from the beginning. And that was not something you were allowed to say in the early days in polite company or publish in the New York Times and or discuss in, in, in government debates and so on. But I think it was true, you know, and I'm not gonna be able to prove it. I haven't done the investigation to even stand up in a debate, but I mean, come on. <laughs> that this weird virus that they happen to be working on this institute just happened to, explode in that particular area within a few miles of the institute. It just Anyway.
0: Yeah, no, so, I, mean, now, I, I, I would like I would be much happier if there was just no screaming and sh- shutdowns of uh, controversial speakers. I and mean, I think that would be a real advance and a real relief. But I do take your point. And it's something I've been thinking about over the past few years, being involved with Heterodox Academy and other movements like that. But yeah. at the same time, I wanted to be defending civility and philosophical discourse or dialectic and yeah. on the other hand, I also want to be defending uh, quite a strong principle of free speech. And sometimes these two things are in tension, because if you have too strong a norm of civility and how things should be, then it yeah. risks um, pushing aside some, some yeah. modes of expression. Yeah. And I think people should be
1: well-behaved. You know, you're right. I'm not for screaming. I don't think it accomplishes anything, you know, at least in the context that we're talking about, like universities. Three protests might be another thing. But at any rate, in the context we're talking about, yeah, I want people to be civil and well-behaved because I just don't think it really does much. What I'm concerned with is which ideas are allowed to be discussed and and which aren't. And without anonymity, the way our regime works nowadays for those, I believe, the Yarvin reasons that I was giving earlier, the way our regime works, new ideas are just not going to come in except through anonymous sources because the window is is too narrow.
0: Yeah. so, oh, I agree. So at the risk of uh, further curtailing speech, uh, I should probably go because I've got this meeting. But thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I hope, you do, I hope you do continue with your project of Plato-derived uh, liberalism because I find it very fascinating. I actually, I'm sympathetic to it probably because I also have this tendency of my own that I got into classics and I like classics. And I think, well, how, how can I speak to the modern world and I maybe mean, one of my things is, oh, I can use Protagoras to better justify democracy. And yeah. you go out into the real world and you try and tell them that it sounds a bit harebrained, but maybe it's the right idea, right? Maybe this is particularly, this is one of those ideas that we need to actually have in, in public sphere. Yeah, well,
1: isn't that what Rorty tried to do? I mean, that's my understanding of Rorty. Is it, oh, right? I haven't
0: even read Rorty, so they, backs, oh. back, to, back to the drawing board for me. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna end the recording, so thanks, Patrick. Okay.